Welcome to Embodied Business Inspired Brain Podcast. This is Anne, and we are once again thrilled to support you in deepening your connection to your perceptions and the sensations that you have within your body experience and connecting that to your inspiration in your brain and your mind and looking at all of this through the lens of self-growth and your business and leadership development. Today, we are going to specifically be speaking about money and safety, why and how we keep ourselves from what we say we desire. We know you're gonna really enjoy this today. It should probably bring up some good questions and some good thoughts for you to to think about. So whether you're listening on a drive, on a walk, bicycling around, doing your dishes, um, or out in nature, we are here and we hope that you leave today with a little more inspiration and some clear action to take. Hiya. (laughs) Money and safety. Mm. Money, money, money. Yesterday, you and I were having a conversation and the bottom line when we got off the phone was, we're just going to talk about the money. And that, <laughs> <That's got right. laughs> me, <laughs> that got me thinking about today's show. And we did some work with our long-term uh, mentoring group yesterday, which was also about the embodied or nervous system experience. I won't say or, because those are not necessarily the same thing, but the embodied experience of when we're resistant to something. And, and then it got me thinking about how money, if money is power and money is freedom, what the hell is there to be resistant to? Right. That's like, but, but we know it's not that simple. And so I'm really excited today to be talking about this from a myriad of perspectives so that potentially those of you who are watching and listening are likely very embroiled in the embodiment field or profession. And that means something specific, which we'll get into, and it has specific implications. And we want to talk about that in relationship to money and then Feeling safe or not safe in relationship to earning money, charging your worth, etc. So, money and safety. I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. How are you today, Anne? I'm I'm very well. Um, <laughs> here in Northern California, it is sputtering some rain, and mm-hmm. that, to be honest, when it rains, it feels a lot more safe because. We're in the worst mm. drought in like 1,200 years. So um, I'm glad it's raining. Yeah, yeah. So we have decided that we're going to start our shows with something called Real Life Riff. And we're talking about what's in progress, what's in process. Um, I would like to turn your attention to this lovely item that I'm sitting on, which is my new blue velvet couch in my new redesigned what I'm calling coffee room. This is where I come and have my coffee. And I sit on my blue velvet couch and I look out at my backyard, which I have now just redone and I'm planting new plants and I bought new patio furniture and it is a spectacular thing. That's what's in process for me. And I, I'm really excited about it (laughs) because I am committed to beautiful spaces and beautiful experiences. And I've been uh, having something really interesting come up around that. Um, Just to tie us into the money piece, which is I, and I was sharing this with you, Anne, recently, I have not said no to anything I wanted in this, in creating this space, in recreating this space. Like I have been thoughtful and mindful and responsibly spending blah, blah, blah. But I have not 
said no to the blue velvet couch. <laughs> I have not said no to new plants. I have not said no to new art. I have not said no to like the little things that really are meaningful for me. And in that experience, I've had um, this underlying voice that has said, should you really be doing that? Isn't that frivolous? Aren't you going to seem greedy? What will people think? And there's a handful of people who I care that are related, you know, like deeply related to this space and, and are engaged with me in a, in a financial sense. And, and then it's like, maybe I'm being frivolous. Maybe I'm being irresponsible. But the truth is, I'm not. And so it's been this very interesting evolution for me, um, and particularly to notice this undertone, like uh, my housemate who just moved out, um, I bought a new rug, and I put the rug in the living room, and he said, another rug? He said, I don't think you need another rug. And I said, you don't get to have an opinion about the rugs in my space. So, but then I started to think, then it triggered the little voice that said, you're spending too much, you're being frivolous, you're being greedy, you should save your money. That's not what wealthy people do. They're frugal. They manage their money better. Like all the little interesting unwindings. But at the end of the day, I'm super happy to be spending my hard-earned money on making my space beautiful. So that's my real life riff. That's what's in progress and progress or process for me. How about you, Anne? <laughs> mm, I love that because as soon as I sat down with you, I said, and there's that new blue couch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm used to seeing you, you know, within a, a square of space. And I'm like, I've I never know. seen that square of space. I'm like, is she traveling? And I'm like, no, that's her blue couch. That's right. This is my new, and I'm going to, I'm going to record from, from every room in my house, which now is completely up to me. I can be anywhere I, I want, <laughs> which is wonderful. fabulous. Yeah. yeah. It feels good. Mm. Well, I thank you so much for, for sharing that, that side and, and what's going on in your life right now. Um, What's going on in my life right now is I am still unwinding that um, ability to really spend on myself for the sake of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for my own pleasure, like mm. I have been, um, because I want to be clear, like prior to stepping into the knowledge economy, I didn't have as much opportunity to spend and I was right. much more thought like, you know, I'll buy less lattes, I guess. And that's how I'll, I'll be more wealthy. Yeah. Cause that's right? what we're and, taught, right? Right. We're taught to just deny, deny, deny. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I have found myself doing is sort of slipping into this old pattern where, I have more income and I, I recently had a surgery on my hip. It was called a labral hip repair surgery and it's been tremendously successful. Although for those of you who've had one or, or hopefully, or you may have to have one someday, the recovery is like longer than something like a hip replacement. Um, but you get to keep your hip. So <laughs> I'm thrilled about that, <laughs> but it took me, I paid for, for recovery support so I paid for, um, physical therapy out of my, out of pocket, even though I have very good health insurance as my husband's in a union, <laughs> but, um, I, the physical therapy I was getting was not supportive until I found this amazing person. And so it's interesting because, and then I was, um, I was also spending some of my money, my money on mental health because I had to sort of process going through the surgery. If anyone has mm -hmm. had surgery, sometimes it can, it can bring up emotions. Um, and so it certainly did for me. And so it's really good for me. Again, that was something that I'm paying for out of my own pocket. So it's kind of this interesting thing where it's like, well, I'm willing to spend 
a good bit of money for healthcare to get myself to neutral. And now it's like, but I want to spend more to go above neutral. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That pleasure zone or that desire zone, you know, because in the past, you know, that's part of why I became a Pilates instructor is I had pain. And so I spent like all my money on Pilates so that I can like get to neutral Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of beyond it. So it's very interesting. It's like, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm working into that, but I think we all, you know, we all have our money stories and, um, and it's just been really, I mean, I have been getting facials. That is something (laughs) that I've been doing. I was um, totally again, commending you yesterday on that yeah. when we were talking, because that's one of my favorite things to do, too, is a facial. Yeah. But then you had something and, else. Yeah, you were saying more. Say more about that, because it was an interesting um, train of thought. Well, again, like a facial is sort of like a base, like foundation layer. Like, I'm always very confident with spending money on the foundations where it's not flashy Mm. or if it's flashy, it's like not expensive, but flashy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, you get a facial, it's like, well, that's the foundation of your skincare. You know, it's not like I'm going to, um, you know, a a place where they do your makeup and they, they, they like, you know, give you a full, you know, I don't even know what you call it, but they put a bunch of makeup on you and then you buy it. Matches you. I don't know. I've done it like <laughs> whatever once in that life. is, <laughs> and then you buy all the makeup, right? Although, um, so that's just an example um, of that of like kind of how I'm more comfortable spending money in a way that is. Um, so I love being around you and that sense of beauty because when I am in your space, it feels <laughs> really good and it's I'm inspiring. So yeah. I mean, I, and so I think, um, and it's funny because with my business, I have remodeled it multiple times. I've invested in, um, people to do feng shui in the past. I've just hired someone to do plants in the studio. So it's like, I'll spend money on the business. Right. And I, it's just interesting how our different money stories and spent or our spending habits, when you think about them can really reveal a bit of your money story. And I hadn't heard about money stories for a long time or before about a couple of years ago. And so in case you're listening um, and you don't know what a money story is, um, it's just that ability to say, you know, what stories maybe did your grandparents or parents or family have that weren't necessarily spoken out loud yeah. But that were that you just sort of soaked up in your childhood about how to use money, how to spend money, uh, because a lot of that just kind of is a subconscious way of of um, of working with your money, and so and and using it and spending it on yourself. And so for me, it's been a good reflection to 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 see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I want to give some examples of money stories that can be un, you know unconsciously inhibiting our the actions that we take or the energy we put forth to acquiring wealth building wealth right making money however those are not necessarily the same things but making money and then building wealth um i in one of my earlier partnerships my business partner was married to a man who's family had a lot of money. So they had, they, there was like trust money, like, but lots of historical family money. Um, and he was, uh, in like, they were so it's like this, you hear this story, right? This is a, let's just call it an archetype, you know, kind of think about it that way. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, like so frugal, like so withholding of the money. Like the reason I have money is because I don't spend money. Right. And then, and, but that had been like, I had known his father, I knew his father just, you know, kind of peripherally 
and I had heard stories and it's so interesting to, when you take the 10,000 foot view, as you like to say, Anne, you could see the belief system passed down around money. Like the only reason we have money is because we do not spend it. But there was one place that he spent it and it was traveling, but just himself or his children, not necessarily traveling with his partner, nor sharing that money with her to invest in her business. It's like, so, so that's an example of how a money story can be ancestral, historical, and shape the way that you then behave and relate to money. Um, there, it, it's really interesting. So I was thinking this morning about, well, first of all, you and I were in conversation a couple of days ago around what is the energy that we are putting into our financial goals. And one of the things I feel like one of the lessons you and I have learned is it's not powerful enough in terms of creating action to want to make X amount of dollars. The X amount of dollars have to mean something, right? They, and they have to mean something powerful enough that supports a high level of positive urgency. So what you will hear Anne and I talk about frequently is the difference between positive urgency and negative urgency, which is a, it's a language and a frame framing of uh, taking action that has been passed down to us um, and that we found very useful. When you have negative urgency around money, it's a sense of desperation, right? Like, like if, if I don't make this work, everything's going to fall apart. I'm going to be a failure. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm not going to be able to live. I'm not going to, it's like, and so you're driven to take action to make money, but it's coming from a, a negative place, right? It's coming from a sense of lack. It's coming from a sense of, I don't have enough. I will never have enough, you know, and then, and then the story kind of unravels from there. Positive urgency is I desire to do amazing things in my life and amazing things for people. And I desire to have amazing experiences. And that is what's driving my desire to take action toward making money and building wealth. And we were, our mentor and coach was sharing with me that after buying and remodeling her dream home last year, she was like, well, I don't know what else I want. Like I just achieved the thing I wanted most. And, and I've been having that experience a little bit too. It's like, what I have always wanted is not to worry about money and, and to have money saved. And I don't worry about money and I have lots of money saved. So, so what I noticed is like, well, what's my urgency now? And, and so you and I were talking about that recently and, and, and you shared some really helpful things with me. Um, but what, what I wanted to share is that she said it wasn't a thing that was driving her urgency. It was an experience. She said, I want to have fun. And, and experience joy in my business. Like that's what's driving me to be in my business, to build my business is like having fun, being excited, being creative. And it was like, oh, I totally, I can feel that. So that was, that was powerful for me because I think it's easy to stay in a place of um, uh, acquiring money or building our businesses because we want to have things or we want to take vacations, right? Or we want to buy property. Um, but, but it's an interesting shift to say, what if I'm building my business be just simply because I want it to be a thrilling adventure. And, and that, that was, that was a kind of a cool shift. I was like, okay, so, so what is that for me? What's the being experience that's driving me rather than the having experience. 
I loved that she shared that. Um, and my immediate thought was, well, I already did that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think about, so I opened, we both opened our studios very young, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I had children. I didn't have a child in my life until I was 31 with my stepdaughter. And so I had my entire twenties. I was making pretty good money. Single woman living in the San Francisco, living in San Francisco. I, and so I used my Pilates business to travel. Like I didn't, I was really financially totally fine. So I taught Pilates in the Dominican Republic. I taught Pilates in Jamaica. I taught Pilates in Turkey. Um, later on, I taught some Pilates in Hong Kong, Malaysia, cause I wanted to travel abroad. And so, and then when I got a, like right at that 30 year old threshold, I said, well, how can I leverage my business or my Pilates experience in teaching to go to grad school? And then when I came back, then I had, um, I had a child with my stepdaughter, um, my stepdaughter was, you know, part of my financial responsibility at that point. And then I had two more children and it was like, boom. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so I've used my, so, and I think that I want to share that because I do think a lot of people enter into Pilates or enter into embodied practices, particularly if they've been in corporate world and they made a bunch of money, or maybe they didn't even make that much money, but they just couldn't handle their stress or didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And so then they choose to come into the Pilates or yoga or, you know, some sort of embodied practice space. And I feel like for me, it was like this trade-off. Well, I'm doing my passion. I'm doing what I love. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm able to travel with it. So gosh, if I wanted money on top of it, that would be it's too asking much. too much. Mm-hmm. It's asking too much. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't until I had children where I was like, it, it it's just I can't, it doesn't make sense to be away from them and and not bring an in income. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but I feel like that for those of us who might be stuck in that place of like, well, you know. I do it because I love it or I love helping people or, you know, I'd like to think that I would come into a place of like, I want to bring in more money and desire more money as an entrepreneur, because I'm not just a Pilates studio owner. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not just a Pilates instructor. I'm also an entrepreneur as many of us are who have stepped into this um, realm is that I hope that I would desire the money just, just for my own sake, whether or not I'd had children or not, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like, you can always say, well, it's for the kids. <laughs> Cause you know, that's the noble thing to say, right? Like that's what we're <laughs> conditioned to, you know, well, if the money's for that, of course, of course it's for the kids. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm hoping my ambition would have come around at some point <laughs> regardless um, for the money piece. So I'm wondering, have you, do you feel like when you first started your studio that it was really based on like, I'm going to build this Pilates studio, like back in the early aughts to, to bring in a big income? Was that? Um, for, for me, it was really about, uh, the freedom. Like I knew after having been a journalist for several years out of college, I just knew that I, I wanted to be my own boss. So for me, it was more the freedom of choice um, to to build a business. And I'm a creative person. So I was really drawn to the entrepreneurial path of creating and building. And and I love building teams and I'm quite good at it. So the idea of like having having a team of teachers and a team, a community of of people coming in for, you know, for movement experiences. I think was my big motivation. I, um, and I wanted to be able to travel and and I did a lot, a lot, a lot of travel. Even after we had kids, we traveled with the kids all over the world. Um, I think I never, I didn't start my business because I thought, oh, this is going to be a huge money-making opportunity. Um, 
but I did have my, my mentor, uh, my Pilates mentor said to me once, you'll never make money teaching Pilates. And I remember the moment I remember where we were. I remember how I felt when she said that. And in my mind, I said, that is bullshit. Like that, that was my inner response was it's not, it can't be true. It's not true. I didn't believe it. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I could leverage my knowledge and not just be stuck in the dollars for hours, you know, showing up and teaching 30 hours a week while running a business and raising a kid. Um, it took me a long time to get there, but, but I did. And I know that you can, you can do it too. So this is one of the things I wanted to talk about also is yes, we have to do the mindset work. We just do. You have to open your eyes to the things inside of you that are ingrained, nurtured, implied culturally, socially, economically, uh, that are holding you back, right? Stopping you from feeling safe moving into a place of greater abundance financially. And I, and I want to, I want to circle back to what does that even mean to feel safe, you know, in making money. Um, but one of the things that you and I do and feel really strongly about is, and, and you really, I think I didn't understand it until you verbalized it, but it's like in, in a service-based economy where you are charging an hourly rate for the thing that you do, your money-making potential will always be finite. But we as highly educated, exceptionally trained individuals, particularly in the, in the Pilates realm, but in the health and wellness, many of us are you know, master's degrees and PhDs. I don't know how many of those folks we work with, PTs and OTs, and who are not making any money. And it's it's a real shame and it's disheartening. But the problem is we're working in the service economy. And so one of the things that Anne is spectacular at doing, the way her mind works, is like, I see all these other people out there leveraging their knowledge for a lot of income return. Why on earth aren't we doing that in this industry? And then she goes out and she she finds the people who are starting to bridge the gap between the models that work and, and our industry. Let's just call us the embodied professionals, right? Any kind of health and wellness um, professional. And that has been really liberating for us to shift out of the service economy and into the knowledge economy. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. And what, what does it actually mean to what's the knowledge economy? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of it, I saw it very clearly during the lockdown in COVID and the beginning of it. And I was reading a lot of articles about people who were working from home. You know, they essentially had an office job and now they were working from home and it was all crazy because if you had, particularly if you had children, you know, it's just another level of craziness, or if you were caretaking anybody, you know, maybe even an older parent, it's just trying to work and then caretake. Um, and I just remember reflecting on those articles and being like, well, those might have been the clients coming into my studio. <laughs> and here I am working with all of my teachers and we're all pivoting to zoom and everything it's like it's it's so transactional it's like dollars hour time hour and it just got me thinking about 
the results that we get our students or our patients, whatever term you give them within our industry of health and wellness is not transactional. They're not only getting the result during the time they're with you, right? right. There's so many stories of, you know, moving again, feeling confident again in their bodies or just absolute stress release, like, you know, feeling like they can actually breathe again. You know? um, and one of the biggest things I think that we do, particularly if within the health and wellness field, you work with bodies. That knowledge that you gain about that individual person's specific body, but not only their body, their embodied self, their moods, their feelings, all of that. The longer you work with that person, it's almost like it's an exponential increase of how much you can support them because you know their body so well, you know the exact move that, or the exact stretch or the exact whatever adjustment, whatever work you do with them that is going to relieve their discomfort and you know, ideally even move them towards more optimal health, right? Mm -hmm. And whereas if they went to someone else, it might take another person, even if they're quite good, just because you have to get to know the body, it might take that other person five hours before they get to the level that you're at, right? And so it got me thinking that there, there is this body of knowledge that you have that's very personalized to this person, yet, you, yet maybe you incrementally raise your rates but that it, it, it's not in alignment, the payment between the knowledge that you have and how much you can support them versus how much you can incrementally raise your rates. And so it really got me thinking that, well, if all these other industries get to work from home and have really powerful results with their clients, um, why can't our industry? <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just as smart. We're just as um, supportive of our, and we get amazing results for the people we work with. But you can't, you can't try to take the, not, the service-based economy and take it from a, an in, a, re, a live event situation and just plop it into a virtual situation. That's not going to be as, as, as potent. And so that's a really where I think I, it, re- it was just really thinking about people outside of our industry and how, you know, there's this freedom to be able to, you know, well, uh, I can't work with my kid, you know, with this client from three to seven because there's homework I have to do with my children, but I can work on my work from, you know, eight to 10 o'clock at night. I'm just thinking of when the pandemic was happening and I'm like, yeah, but we can't do that in the model we're working in. So how can we shift that model? Yeah. So that's really, I think what got me really noodling on that. Yeah. And then the thing is like, how do you, how do you leverage your knowledge in a way that is not just limited to a, a, a live one-on-one interaction? Right. And the way you do that is by developing transformational curriculum that supports your clients and your students far longer and in much richer ways, honestly, than just a one hour session or a one hour engagement per week. And so shifting the model, I feel like, has been. It's like you don't have to drop everything you're doing, but can you hybridize the model so that you can leverage your knowledge for greater wealth rather than feeling like, well, I only am completely handcuffed to I can't work more than five hours a day, five days a week because I've got family responsibilities and you know, or I just can't, well, you know, for whatever the reason is. So I think that's been a huge piece for us. And, and I'm just, 
it feels important to talk about because it's one of the hardest outside of the box shifts that I've seen um, that there is to make. It's like, if you are a dentist, you can only imagine dentistry can be done one way, right? Well, you can only clean teeth when somebody's there with you, obviously. But how else could you support your customers, your patients, that goes well beyond a dental cleaning? Just as an example, right? To leverage your knowledge, your skill, your expertise in a different way. I just think it's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, like, I remember a lot of times hearing in the Pilates world, like, it's kind of exciting to learn all the anatomy and then you get all excited about the anatomy. And then a lot of people tell you, well, nobody wants to know about the anatomy. So don't bother telling them because they're just not interested. And I know in my studio, what were my clients asking me to pull over the skeleton and pull out an anatomy book? No. But I do know that they are lifelong learners. They like to read. They like to have aha moments. And that is partially why they like Pilates, because Pilates does provide many aha moments in students, right? Mm -hmm. That ability to feel your body. And what I found was it's not that they're not interested. It's that they don't want that knowledge while they're on the Cadillac or the reformer, other than if it's just a two sentence blurb about you saying something, they actually do desire that knowledge because most of them are working in the knowledge economy, right? Mm -hmm. They love to keep learning, right? And, and they don't all want to check out. I I just don't believe that. (laughs) Um, and, and I've seen it in my own students where, and not, they don't all, cause we're all different, but just blanket say no one coming into your studio, unless they want to be a Pilates instructor wants to know, or a yoga or a Hannah somatics, or whatever it is you're teaching wants to know that information. That's just not true. Many of them do. They, they see other doctors that might not all be allopathic, right? And they like having those cross discussions and that's meaningful to them because they have an experience in their body that they can't explain. And that's partially why a lot of people work with people in our, in the health and wellness field is because mm-hmm. something in their body is not quite right. And they're trying to figure it out. So many people are knowledge seekers. And so I kind of want to like push that myth aside. Of course, yeah. not all, I get it, but there are some that are, and we are doing a disservice if we are not offering them m- more of our knowledge, but it's just not going to be well-received when they're like, but I'm really here to move at this point in time. Yeah. Well, so, I paid $85 for you to exercise my abs. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, that's, that's the downside of transactional relationships. It's like the, what's top of mind is, am I getting what I paid for? But when you shift to the knowledge economy and you provide experiences and an opportunity for people to go deeper, that is not based on the transactional exchange. There's so much more freedom. And in that is more autonomy. Um, and that just, you know, we could go down that rabbit hole, but that's not what we're here to talk about. That'll have to be another podcast. Um, I want to shift the conversation again to talk about money and embodiment. (laughs) Talk about money and embodiment. But I want to start this conversation by clarifying what the title of this podcast and what I said earlier about money and safety. Money money is just a made-up thing, right? But in our society and in our world, it means freedom, right? It means choice, more freedom, more choice, more power, empowerment. And those things are not always spaces in which we feel safe. And 
I was thinking this morning about this. So in the real life riff at the beginning of the podcast, I said this little voice that comes up that says, if you, if you have money and you spend it, you don't like, I don't want people to think I'm frivolous, right? That's not a safe, that's not a safe space emotionally for me to be in. Like, I don't, uh, that matters to me, right? I don't like, what are our, what are the beliefs that we have about rich people, about having a lot of money? Um, a family member asked to borrow money from me recently. And I was not, I was like, man, I don't want to be the person that everybody wants to borrow money from. Like, so, so the underlying fear is that if I have money, people are going to want it and I'm going to feel obligated to give it, or I'm going to have to enter into those uncomfortable situations. All of that is like, resistance to having money. Those thoughts are resistant to having money. Because when I think about that, and that's my assumption about having money, I start to feel not safe. I start to feel uncomfortable, right? In my, in my body experiences, my heart races, I get a little sweaty, my solar plexus gets tight, my stomach turns. It's like, I, I don't want people to think I'm greedy. I don't want people to think I'm frivolous. I don't want people to, you know, expect that I'm going to just lend money. And if I don't, I'm a bad person. Those are all fear-based assumptions. So how do we, how do we bring those to the surface so that we can become aware of them and hopefully dismantle them? Because none of it's true. It's all just perception. So that's really what I mean by money and safety. Like, what are you afraid of when you think about, I have, if you had lots of money, like so much money, you didn't know what to even do with, like what, what, what happens in you? So, so, so Anne, talk about money and embodiment. What's the connection? Yeah. Well, I feel like you've, you've touched on it, that yeah. sense of, you know, it, you can think of it slightly binary, like safety versus non-safety mm -hmm. um, or not feeling safe. And what you were sharing is I feel like that's, it's like a sense of abandonment. If I mm -hmm. have too much money, will my family abandon me? Or will they lose respect for me? Mm. I think a lot, maybe even in your own industry, like, will my fellow teachers, will my fellow studio owners, will the fellow people that I speak on conference stages with, are they going to think I'm greedy? Are they mm. going to think, um, you know, that... Or they're going to resent me because I make money and they don't. Right, right. And so I think it, it's very permeating. Right. It, it's it can be at the family level. It can be in your peer level. And I want to say, let's break that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's more than enough. You know, if you if you look at if you zoom out and you look at the economics. Right. There's a lot more people. There's a lot fewer people in the middle class now <laughs> than there were in previous generations. Right. There's a much more wealth disparity now. So a few of a few people, you know, really doing very well in the health and wellness industry is okay, but let's get a bunch of people in the health and wellness industry doing really well. So no matter where you live, housing doesn't feel so extremely expensive, right? Like mm -hmm. it's like, I want to change the whole paradigm and yeah. it's like, let's there there is more than enough in my mind, if you are able to change the way you're operating in the economy. So kind of coming out from that dollars per hour and within to selling your knowledge, but I don't need to go there again. But one of the ways that I think about embodiment and you were sort of practicing this yesterday is, you know, where, for, for money, 
Um, and we also were thinking about when you think about money, you can think about it on the level of, I want X amount a month, X amount a year. I want to make 10,000 a month. I want to make, you know, whatever it is you, you want to make 200,000 a year, 500,000 a year, you know, my goodness, a million dollars a year. Like what's important is as you think about that, there's a deeper level about the what's behind it. So like, Mm -hmm. why do you want to make that much money? Yeah. And, And what I think about is I, I would like a larger kitchen so that I can better host, um, my extended family because my husband has four siblings. He's a family of five children. And so when you bring everybody together, it's like instantly full. And that doesn't even include like uh, other people you'd like to, to bring on to the party. So for <laughs> me, the, the more income really is tied to community and time mm. to, and I always used to say, well, I want memories for my kids. Yes. But I also can claim, I just want the good memories for myself. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like I want the good memories for my kids. Absolutely. Be with our cousins. But I also want the memories for myself, too. Um, and that's something I'm really working to step into. I think it's really easy to say, well, for the kids, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely for the kids. But what we also need to, to put ourselves in that equation as well. So so for me, that that's part of it. Um, and and when I think about having a bigger house it kind of goes back to, well, what about the people around me? Do do they have bigger houses? And it kind of, I think, goes back to that abandonment sense. Like, well, will I still have the same friends? Mm. Will I still, um, you know, be in the same circles? Um, So I think, like, I guess it's like class, you know, you're kind of used to your your, your class level, right? And then you don't know what it's like to be in a different level. Um, and so I think that that's really interesting um, to think about because when you step out of something you're familiar with, usually it feels a little uncomfortable, a little yeah. unsafe. Yes. Even if it's a positive thing. Yes. Right. Um, and so I feel like, you know, when I feel about abundance or making more money, I still feel, I believe in my body, a little nervous, right? Mm -hmm, A little mm -hmm. unsafe. And how do I work through that? You know, well, I I, I have some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know I've been afraid to do other things in my life and I was afraid and I did it anyways. Mm -hmm. So I think I'd like to encourage all of us within this community to do that. You know, if, if you have deep, strong ambitions to, you know, create more income within the health and wellness field. Like, let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. Um, Because I'd love to see maybe the health and wellness industry, like be that pioneer, like, hey, if you enter into this industry, we're the industry that reduces the the wealth gap within Mm -hmm. this country, within the Mm -hmm. world, right? Why not? (laughs) Why not have that happen? So let's talk. Uh, there are two things on my mind bubbling up. I want to talk about being agreeable versus disagreeable Ooh, yeah. and how that is a trauma response um, and how that keeps us, particularly as women, from earning as much money. So I want to talk about that and I'm outing myself there so I don't forget. But I want to give you a tool because what Anne is talking about is not just intellectually understanding that you want more money. She's saying, feel in your body the, the the difference of the experience of having more money versus I'm afraid to have more money or I don't have money. Like if you just lie on the floor or you sit here and you're listening or maybe you're driving and you just start to say to yourself, like, what does my, what is my body experience when I tell myself I don't have any money, I'll never make money. I'm not good enough to make money. I should make money because I love what I do. And if I made money too, I would be greedy. You know, like, like sit with that, like feel that in your body. 
You don't always have to understand the story. You can Mm -hmm. feel the story first, and that will lead you to greater intellectual understanding. But what does it feel like when you feel anxious about paying bills, when you believe or have the thought that um, people just don't make money in this industry? Or I'm a teacher. Teachers just don't make money. Or like my mentor said to me, you're never going to make money teaching Pilates. Like, how, how does that feel? And then notice that literally with a few deep breaths and a little bit of like a, a brisk walk or a, some of some, lots of little things that you can do, even just like imagining the, the restriction in your body that you experience when you think about not having money you can literally dissipate that body experience. Like when you, if you're, if your fear gets stuck in your solar plexus right below your rib cage and you take a a breath or two and just even massage your ribs to open, you'll feel that that feeling starts to dissipate. And the nervous system is the root of all behavior. So when your body starts to feel safe from the inside, your brain will start to feel safe. And that's when you get closer to taking action, even when you're afraid. That's powerful stuff, right? Then think about, imagine having all the money that you could possibly have. And notice how quick the restriction shows up. Like imagine yourself somewhere having something, being being somewhere, having accomplished something like so grand, so magical. And notice how long. Does it take one second, two seconds, five seconds? Does it take 60 seconds? Does it take two days before you're like, oh, F. <laughs> I, I, well, I can't, I can't have that. I, you know, you start to get nervous or your body constricts or you start to get agitated or you, you're like, I, I'm done thinking about that. That's so stupid. I'm not going to think about that anymore because I'm getting agitated. Well, why? Like, what is, what's, what does your body response tell you? When there's tension in your body like that, particularly in the gut space, the heart space, when your heart starts to race, it's hot, difficult to take a deep breath. Your mouth gets dry right? You get sweaty. Like those are all fight or flight responses. Those are my nervous system is saying, whatever I am believing right now is making me not feel safe. It is a simple and beautiful way of unwinding much of what we've been talking about, right? The fear of having what you say you want to have. So just like a little practical, you know, tidbit. Um, yeah, deep breath. <laughs> I already feel, I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So something we did, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, if this is the first time you've ever heard Chantel walk you through something like this and you feel nothing, hang in there. I promise you <laughs> it will come because I used to feel nothing. <laughs> And I was like, continue to work with Chantel. It's like, it's like Pavlov's dog. All I have to do is like hear the bell ring and I'm like, ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I, I just want to share that with you. Yeah. You're a hard Still hope. When you're super intellectual, I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, and you have some strong roots in, in like security and, and steadiness, you can be a hard nut to crack. <laughs> you do have to. So keep showing up and keep listening for sure. Um, but then it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, when you start working out and you work out frequently enough or consistently enough, you, 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 you really crave the endorphins, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. what's missing? What's missing? When you start doing the nervous system work regularly enough, you, you just know, you take a deep breath and your whole system shifts. And, and then, then that door is, it swings wide open and, and, and wider each time. Um, I was just thinking of something else. Well, then, then we don't want to just always, uh, project into the experience of fear, right? We want to actually practice feeling into the experience of desire fulfilled, 
right? I think of it as the language I use is liberation, freedom, empowerment, and a sense of being untethered if, if you otherwise feel heavy or weighted. Um, spend time cultivating that experience in your body because having money is like that, right? Mm -hmm. Having money is, is choice. It's freedom. And it's not selfish to want to have choice and freedom and choice because think about all that you could do. I've been thinking a lot about the, about, you know, the refugees and the folks who are leaving Ukraine and about like how amazing it would be to just send aid to scoop up some of the kids, you know, like what, like what money can do, right. To, to, to heal the world. So spend time embodying the fulfillment of your desire because we need to be able to shift in ourselves between the fear that comes up into the liberation that can be manifested and cultivated in here, right? In, in your cells, in your body experience. I did want to share one thing that I feel pretty strongly about, <laughs> which is, um, and I've been making some interesting connections recently around so um, there, there's a book that we love. We should all be millionaires. It's by Rachel Rogers. Here it is sitting next to me because I wanted to quote it. Um, and there was one part that, that I read a, a long time ago that has always stood out. And it's about um, a, some studies that were done that say, essentially, women who are agreeable make less money than women who are considered disagreeable. Um, and that disagreeable women are perceived as being more competent, which I think is really fascinating. So the, the, the research, she says, research study led by professors. Oh, <laughs> hello, phone call. Um, this is your destiny calling. You're about to earn more money. <laughs> A research study led by professors from the University of Notre Dame, Cornell, and Western Ontario found that agreeable women earn less than those who are disagreeable. On average, the study found that agreeable women made $3,213 less per year than disagreeable ones. In addition, the study also found that disagreeable people are seen as more competent. So uh, I share that because I want to make this connection with, with being agreeable um, and how particularly as females, it is a desire. We are taught it's a desired quality to be soft and to be, you know, to make small talk and to be agreeable and um, not rock the boat. And um, in my mind, this leads us down, not always, but often like this trail of like being appeasing, and being appeasing can also be talked about as being people-pleasing. And the more I learn about the nervous system and the more I learn about trauma responses through the nervous system, um, what I know is that what I'm discovering is that appeasing or being agreeable, particularly when one does not feel agreeable, but being agreeable out of fear of being seen as unladylike, um, disruptive. Here are some of the words, unaccommodating. Here are the words that have been described to me. I'm just going to say it by men. Well, no, no. And women, abrasive, rigid, opinionated. Like we don't, we don't always want to be seen that way. And so we appease and we people please. But appeasing and being unnecessarily agreeable or bending over backwards, which many of us do for our clients and students mm -hmm. is a, is a trauma response. It's a response to not feeling safe. So fight, flight, feign, which is fainting or fawning. Fawning mm -hmm. is like, please don't, you know, like, it's okay. I'll do anything. 
you know, I'll, I'll do anything. Just don't leave. Don't, you know, whatever, whatever the, don't leave a bad review on Yelp. Right. I it runs the, yeah. It runs the gamut. Don't leave because I can't be without your money. Don't, don't be mad because I don't want a bad review. Don't be mad because don't hit me. You know, like this range of like appeasing and how it shows up is, is, is a response out of fear. And in relationship to money, I think it can be like you were talking about and have talked about often, Anne, is your ambition and feeling, I don't know what the word is that you would use, but I know that I have felt ashamed of being ambitious. And then, uh, then I, then I downplay my ambition mm-hmm. and I downplay yeah. my intelligence because I don't want to be seen as rigid, abrasive, unaccommodating, opinionated, you know, all the things that feel like they are meant to be negative. And I think it's one of the reasons why we make less money or why we don't make as much money as we possibly could because we want to be accommodating and as teachers and nurturers and healers, isn't that what we are supposed to be? It's a real shame, but it does not have to be that way. So I guess my point is, wow, it's fascinating, isn't it? How fear dictates our behavior, 100%, mm-hmm. right? This is the nervous system as the foundation of behavior. When we can accurately assess whether or not we are safe, which we can't always, right? Our mind does all kinds of things to make us believe in instances that we are not safe and then prevents us from taking positive action. So I would just encourage you to notice, again, like, what's the fear? around money? What's the fear around shifting the model of what you do so you can actually make more money? Will people be upset with you? Will they stop coming to you? Will they say bad things about you? Like what's the fear and, and how can you, how can you move through it? Um, and I don't know, what do you think, Anne? I know we want to maybe wrap things up here. Do you have any final, final thoughts, nuggets? I just know that like listening to all of this work and ideas are really great. Um, But then really, really working through it on your own and then acting on it um, for me has been the most powerful because I don't always embody what it is until I start to take action. Like, I don't yes. even know if I can. It's like, I don't have what I want, which is to feel super safe making a bunch of money. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm either going to not do anything and deal with that, or I'm going to start to take action despite the fact that I don't haven't felt it yet. Because yeah. I know for me, it's like the actions have to precede the feeling usually. Mm. And so how can I become more comfortable taking action before the feelings occur and before proof occurs? Yes. And so I just encourage, encourage all of us um, to step into that. Yeah. So, so what's one tiny action that you could take, right? To begin to cultivate opportunities of proving that having more is safe. One small action. Yeah. That's that's the, that's, I'm putting that in the world. (laughs) I'm putting that out there in the world. I encourage everyone to do that. Take, take an action because we can get really used to not taking action and just thinking about things. But if you're in the embodied space, you probably preach action. Yeah. (laughs) On some level. So the goal is take action, even if you're afraid. But find in your body, like how to dissipate the fear enough to take the action. All right. I love these conversations. I feel like they get better each time. Um, This is episode four and we'll catch you next time.
Ciao. Bye. All right, that wraps up our episode four, Money and Safety, Why and How We Keep Ourselves from What We Say We Desire. As always, we hope that you are able to connect with us and able to feel into your body a bit and also take away some inspired ideas for you to think about and maybe even take some action on. One thing that we always want to remind you is that if you are loving these episodes and loving our work, please review us either on iTunes or Spotify. And you can also just tell anyone you know about what we're talking about and how we're bringing that connection between embodiment inspiration and business together if you'd like to reach out to us you can do so at chantil at pilatesmastersprogram.com or anne at pilatesmastersprogram.com once again we want to thank our musician max mackey for the intro and outro music he is based in colorado So we hope to see your reviews and connect with you more.